Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. Our very special guest on the show this time is Joshua Porter, pastor of teaching and creative vision at Van City Church in Vancouver, Washington. He's also a former member of the experimental punk band Showbread and the author of the novel Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People. And uh, he's here to talk with us. And I should mention I'm being joined also by my co-host, Rido, we call him because he's Australian. Anyway, Reverend Ian Reid, Rido, we call him from King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Rido, hi. And Josh, hi. And he's here to talk with us about his new book from Craigle Publications called Death to Deconstruction, Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. And I quote from the publicity. Deconstruction is a hot topic these days, as more and more people leave behind the rigid Christianity they were raised in or have experienced in the last years of polarity and toxicity. Joshua Porter says, I get deconstruction. He's been there, done that, returned to Jesus and faith. And now he writes openly, honestly, humorously and pointedly to both the deconverted and those who remain, albeit precariously, in the world of faith. End of quote. Joshua, hi, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, thanks for having me. Oh, well, we're delighted. And Rito, I know, is thrilled because he's a fan of Showbread. And uh, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw some time over in the interview early on for him to ask his Showbread questions. I've got to say, I went and watched some of the Portland, was it the final Portland gig on online? And yeah. I mean, I know nothing about punk rock, but you guys were really delivering it. And it was about as electrifying and exciting a live show as you could get. So, and everyone seemed to be enjoying it. So I'm all for it. Now, Great. what drew you, we'll get, come on to the book in a minute, but what drew you to punk rock and wanting to be a musician? Well, I think the musician thing started really early on. It's probably the story most people have. My dad uh, bought me copies of Queen records and Aerosmith records. He was, you know, like a 70s rocker and was uh, really taken with bands like ACDC. And and so he would have these records on in the house. And my brother and I were always gathering around his stereo to listen to A Night at the Opera or, you know, the Toys in the Attic. And um, we, my brother and I were saying from a very early age, oh, we have to start a band one day we're going to be in a band which i'm sure is the aspiration of a lot of little kids when they hear music for the first time or connect with music for the first time but it wasn't until i found punk rock when i was um maybe an early teenager that the kind of wiring of my personality came together with what i wanted to do vocationally i'm wired to a fault for sure for uh rebelliousness and sort of a contrarian by nature and in punk rock music and kind of, you know, punk rock philosophy to sound really pretentious about it, there's sort of this um, expected uh, questioning of the status quo or deliberately running contrary to the status quo. And that to me was really appealing and sort of uh, mesmerizing. And I felt, oh, I can I can carve out a niche for myself in this little world. Um, so that was like the convergence of I wanted to do music, but I, I felt like punk rock was the place where anything meaningful I had to say would thrive. I'm old enough to remember when punk rock came out in the 70s, and I remember vividly the Sex Pistols and the impact they made. They were electrifying. Now, you write that punk rock was for you an electrified connective tissue. I love that phrase. To express what you believe to be the truly subversive teachings of Jesus. Now, how did the subversiveness of Jesus and the subversiveness of punk rock come together for you? Well, I, I 
picked up on the thread of uh, what I describe as subversiveness and the teachings of Jesus early on, because I grew up in the rural deep South of America and in a deeply conservative culture and what I would describe as a fundamentalist culture. And there were good things about my church upbringing. And there were a lot of things that weren't so great. Um, but I was always drawn to Jesus early on the, the storybook Jesus of Sunday school classes and the Jesus of the Bible, um, in youth group and early adolescence, but when I actually read Jesus, it seemed to me deeply subversive. It seemed like I was picking up on these motifs of Jesus challenging institu institutions and power and deliberately speaking truth to um, religious authority, to political power, even at the expense of his uh, certainly livelihood, but a, maybe a better way of saying it would be like his his following and his reputation that Jesus seemed, this is a really trite way of putting it, but Jesus seemed to me really punk rock. He seemed rebellious in that way. And that was magnetic to me. And I was trying to bring the magnetism of the, you know, the punk rock Jesus to my um, religious authority figures and in, in church. And there was a lot of like, no, no, no it's not, <laughs> you're, you're reading him wrong. He's not like that. So that was kind of the, I guess, the beginnings of that painful. I thought that I was sensing a connection between the two and I was being told that that connection was, I was mistaken. Um, and so I, in my, you know, youth and naivety and arrogance, quite frankly, it was like, no, I figured it out. I'm going to go work it out for myself. It is kind of the beginnings of the story of the book, the deconstruction process. Yeah, we'll come on to deconstruction in a minute. But I mean, rockers have always had a problem. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis got thrown out of Bible college for playing honky tonk piano in the chapel one morning and back in the 50s. And I thought, what's the matter if Jerry Lee Lewis turned up at my church and played honky tonk piano? He can't now. Of course, he's passed on, but I wouldn't be complaining. Uh, Rido, uh, you are a fan of, of showbread and you're into into this. Questions for Josh, please. Well, I think my, my experience is, is quite similar to Josh's, not not so much in the fundamentalist kind of Christian side, but the there's a sense of when I met Jesus myself, that subversiveness of what he, of, you know, what he, of what he embodies, that there's something about punk that kind of, um, it, yeah, it has the same embodiment of that kind of lived out, uh, and it has aspects of who Jesus is, you know, kind of. And when you, the, one of the big issues that that we've seen kind of in the punk scene is that it has become mainstream, right? And it, it's lost that subversiveness, just as the church has as well. And I think some of that is being reclaimed a little bit now. How did you kind of go through that process yourself of coming to? kind of a different position on both of those, on both punk, but also on, on the church. Yeah, the disillusionment with punk rock happens kind of fast because you're promised a a counterculture and you're promised, uh, at least I assumed rightly or wrongly, that this was a way out of herd mentality, a way out of click or, you know, trend. And what you discover almost immediately is that it is another trend or it's another click, it's another herd mentality. And so you immediately start asking the question of like, well, who then who subverts punk rock? If if punk rock has rules and a fashion sense and a structure and 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 right away there's a whole like, oh, well, this is punk and this isn't punk. And there are these rules that you're expected to follow. And the rules range from like kind of broad and abstract to so hyper specific and nuanced that it's like, oh, my God, who who can possibly keep up with all this? 
And this was why I went to punk in the first place to get out of all this. And now I'm having to follow all these rules and of what it means to look punk, let alone to sound punk or to behave punk. So that was that was disillusionment uh, on top of disillusionment. You know, you go here to find a way out and then you need a way out of the way out. And it kind of conveniently lines up parallel with the journey of uh, finding um, a place for myself in the Christian movement, which was, you know, I I wanted to, at least subconsciously, I think, but maybe even consciously, though I didn't know how to articulate it, I wanted to belong to a community and to a people. I wanted to have a place for myself, but then there's this kind of broken wiring in me that's also like, but I don't want to belong. I want to be special and different and unique. And so I thought that I would hop into punk and bring Jesus with me. And that became kind of a complicated tangle. And then there were all these rules in punk and no one wanted me to have Jesus in punk. And even the idea of Jesus punk rock was kind of being subsumed into what we might call like the mainstream by honestly by bands like mine or our peers. So it it all starts to feel as if it's something of a put on. And that's what I'm most allergic to is anything that I perceived to be phony or inauthentic so it's a it's a painful place to live you're an artist brother and you get it from both sides don't you You get it from the punk rock establishment if i can use that term and you get it from the church neither of which group will accept you it's very painful and you struggled a lot with depression haven't you in fact the book starts with you writing very honestly and rawly if that's a word i've just made it up about um your uh, thoughts about suicide. Now, how did you find your way out of that? Well, that season, the that really dark season, and that it kind of punctuates different movements of the book, came after my, you know, um, I think what you might describe as a, a different stage of maturity and my commitment to faithfulness and following the way of Jesus. It was post the deconstruction phase of my adolescence and early adulthood, and I had written the book without those passages there. Frankly, they're kind of embarrassing and they're not something that I talk about with a lot of people. So I I had not thought to include that whole story. And I realized that it ends up this, the story of my deconstruction and reconstruction, if you know that, if you like, or journey back into faithfulness and into the Christian tradition and becoming a pastor and all that, it, it felt as if it kind of wrapped itself up a little too neat and tidy with a bow on it. And I felt as if maybe I had um, unintentionally presented a picture of, I resolved my questions and, and now my journey of faithfulness is, you know, uh, a smooth, unbroken and a road of Christianity that is not fraught with its own unique challenges and problems. And, and if, and then I realized, well, if I'm being honest, the, the thing that I can say most candidly is that, maybe the darkest season of my life, however brief, came after my commitment to faithfully follow the way of Jesus, not before. And that, you know, the the process of discipleship does not clear away the challenges of the human condition. If anything, it, it, can, it can aggravate them in some ways. So I, f- I felt as if it was necessary to... Um, for the sake of honesty and authenticity to to tell almost like an epilogue of, you know, the journey of deconstruction and faithfulness throughout the book that things um, because I've committed to faithfulness doesn't mean that life got easier. In fact, it got it has been harder in some ways. Where does deconstruction come from and and what is it? 
Well, it's kind of become a junk drawer term in the modern spiritual pop culture conversation. Obviously, deconstruction means a lot of different things to different people, and it has different applications in different disciplines. And uh, but if you're, you know, in church, traveling in church circles and talking, and you use the word deconstruction, it I think most often refers to the process of a certain demographic of people, statistically, who embark on a journey to jettison their faith in Jesus. Uh, and and usually it starts with, you know, I, we want out of church. We, we still, we're still Christians and we like the idea of Christianity to some extent, but we don't like the church. That's the classic, you know, adage. We like Jesus, not the church. And then that becomes, you know, the whole, uh, well, we like Jesus, but not the church or the Bible. And so it, it you know, becomes the like, well, let's get rid of this part and this part and this part. And eventually, either leads to deconversion, which is, you know, the, I, I'm, I don't believe any of it anymore. I either a, a move toward agnosticism or atheism or a different worldview altogether that denounces the way of Jesus, or it becomes a sort of hybrid self-made spirituality where you take bits and pieces of the Jesus that you like, but not the Jesus of the scriptures. And you combine it with Eastern mysticism and, or Buddhism or, you know, Hinduism and, different philosophers. And it's basically all the stuff that you like um, with none of the stuff that you don't like and quite convenient that way. Yes. Uh, what were your problems with the Bible and with the church? Well, my issues with the Bible were the same as probably just about anyone who's read the Bible, <laughs> which is that it's a, a deeply complicated work of literature. But the, then on top of that, exacerbated by the whole thing, was that I felt I was not taught how to read the Bible. Uh, I was not given a paradigm for biblical literacy. What I was given was a paradigm for biblical literalism or um, a kind of either you take it or you leave it. Just you have to deal with what the Bible says. The, you know, the, the classic bumper sticker language is the Bible says it, that settles it kind of thing. Mm. Um, w- without the, the Bible says it, I interpret it. Yeah. And that settles it. So I was not given a lens for interpretation whatsoever. It was more of like, well, if you ask questions, it's because you, you might be in sin or you don't have enough faith or why do you have to pull up this thread? Why can't you just leave it alone and take it for what it is? Which w- was a tragedy because even with all my very ordinary quibbles with the Bible, I was drawn to the Bible as a work of, not just as a work of literature, but as a work of literature. It has all the things that I like about a great work of art. It's um, abstract and clear at times. It's beautiful, but it's also grotesque and it's shocking and it's soothing and it inspires, but it also kind of discourages sometimes. They, oh, like it really is a jolt to the senses. These are all the things I like most about a great work of art. Um, but no one had given me a paradigm to understand it as a work of art, because if it was a work of art, then that means it's not true or not real, you know, like the, or at least that was the false dichotomy I was given that if you, accept the Bible as um, both, you know, inspired and authoritative, but also as a great work of sophisticated literature and art. Um, you, you can't have both things. It either has to be one or it has to be the other. Conservatives have one, liberals have the other, or however you like to describe it. And I, I don't believe that those things are true. So I was kind of dealt a bad hand in how to handle the Bible, even though I wanted the Bible. I just couldn't yeah. work it out. Yeah, Rito, your response to that as a pastor? 
Oh, yeah, totally. I think yeah, there's a few things in there, isn't there, that uh, particularly around deconstruction, that it's good. Yeah, it's good to ask questions. It's good to pull on those threads. But I think particularly with our postmodern world, that there is no reconstruction kind of built into that at all. And deconstruction has been going, going on forever, that that people mm-hmm. have wanted to kind of pull on those threads. You, know, you have In Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, you know, he talks about setting out on his journey to kind of go and discover you know, new lands and what he, what he discovers is England, you know, kind of he comes back to his faith through that process of deconstruction. But also on the other, you know, on the other side, a lot of that deconstruction is happening because the church is so weak, you know, kind of in its in its biblical literacy or at least its biblical interpretation. And we just haven't we haven't helped people uh, see the Bible for what it is and given them a paradigm for interpretation. And I, I think that has really weakened people's faith and, and pushed them away of it, you know, kind of because we're giving them a false Jesus and a false Christianity. Yeah, we, yeah, I agree. And we don't like artists, brother, either. Church has problem. Church has never been able to deal with artists. I think that honestly, that's one of the bigger issues, or at least that one of the great issues that's kind of undergirding the entire thing, especially when it comes to the scriptures. I, I'm convinced personally that. Uh, at least evangelicalism or certain expressions of Christianity in the Western world, the modern Western world, have done such a terrible job with the spiritual discipline of art appreciation that we've made it virtually impossible to present a paradigm for biblical literacy because lit- biblical literacy requires the spiritual discipline of art appreciation. It requires some grasp of literature and genre and context and setting and poetry and what what do you what does someone do when they've been told that the Bible is an entirely literal linear manual for life in the modern world, and then they learn that um, the majority of the Bible is poetry, or they learn that the Jesus' favorite style of teaching was parable? You know, how is a poem authoritative, or how is a a parable literal? And and then they they can't work it out. It becomes this ter- terrible, painful process of. Well, how can it possibly be both things if I'm taking it, if I'm just opening and reading the thing, I'm finding poems and allegories and parables and um, but I'm being told that this is a non-negotiable. And part of it is because we have no paradigm for art appreciation in the first place. And that puts you in a terrible position just to understand God at all. I mean, God throughout the story of the scriptures, almost all the time presents himself in wild, vivid images and symbolism. And when he invites uh, his followers, his family, his kids into an experience of himself, it's almost always with wild aesthetics and visuals and, um, you know, the story of the tabernacle or then the temple, or even when God appears to prophets and visions and crazy animal heads and or apocalyptic literature, all these things require some grasp of aesthetics to understand in the first place when the you know God speaks to Peter about how to go minister to the Gentiles he could have just said go down the street and talk to this dude it would make so much sense but instead it's like a blanket comes down from heaven and there's crocodiles in it you know and you're like what the heck God sounds like a kooky artist <laughs> he sounds like a really eccentric crazy artist he is and and he presents himself to us in the scriptures that way. And we've been given no paradigm for it. We've been taught that, you know, art is suspicious, if not inherently immoral, and that metaphor means not true, and that symbolism is, you know, like a a, a pretense. And so 
untangling biblical illiteracy becomes uh, virtually impossible unless you somehow develop a paradigm for art appreciation at the same time. So all that to say, I'm right with you. I think that that, that is one of the huge issues beneath um, the, the deconstruction movement, quite frankly. Yes, and you write it in the book about the great, what you call the great predators, you know, biblical illiteracy and the problem of evil. We haven't got time to go into all, all of those. Um, maybe in another interview, perhaps at some point, I'd love to discuss these in depth. But I, we, we probably need to know how you moved personally, how you moved from deconstruction back to faith. And how was orthodoxy the way out of deconstruction for you? Well, I, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, that sense, that he, very human sense of wanting to belong to something, of wanting to be somewhere with a group of people and a shared sense of um, life or a code by which to live. I think all people want that to some extent, even those of us who are like me, like to romanticize themselves as outsiders or, you know, contrarians. I want to belong to something, you know. People typically, and this is not unique to Christian theory, they um, go through a process of growing and maturing and they realize that there's like a leaving home season of life and they have to seek out a new a new master or, or someone to teach them something. And at some point we learn that we have to give over part of ourselves or our, our autonomy or our youth in the name of something bigger than ourselves to reach that kind of significance that we're all wired to crave to some degree. And it comes in like a community, a shared way of life. So it's why we love the training montage in movies, or we love the idea of someone who gives up everything to go out into the mountains and learn a new way of life. And that speaks to, I think, the the human soul. That's what I wanted. I thought that I would find that in in punk rock. And there, there are expressions of that shared way of life and that community that you can find in all sorts of different um, circles and spheres, social, social spheres and cultural circles. So there was parts of that in punk rock, and that's a beautiful thing. And there were parts of that, honestly, in deconstruction. But deconstruction is more like tribalism. It's, it's a, a shared Againstness, you know, you come together around what you don't like. We know we don't like evangelicalism. We know we're mad at the church that hurt us, so we can share that anger and that hurt. But it can't build real community around itself because there's no code by which we all live. Everyone's sort of redefining spirituality on their own unique terms, and the the code is you do you. You know, like find your own truth. Um, there there can be no community around that because it's so subjective and up to each individual's unique interpretation. So to me, like Chesterton, you know, as as you're saying, that 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 sense of orthodoxy became after everything the code, the 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 community, the actual shared way of the thing that I wanted to give myself over to hundreds and hundreds of years of all kinds of different people all over the world who you know literally have died lived and died for this way of life over these shared core principles the things that are outlined in the creeds and the writings of the fathers and mothers and the most simple basic stuff that I'm still teaching now in church about you know the life and death and resurrection of Jesus about the scriptures about the holy spirit all these things that are part and parcel of the christian experience i thought that i was going to take them all apart and get rid of them but that those were the things to which i returned and i think found the way out of that alienation and that disillusionment and that wanting finding my way into that sense of belonging to something bigger than myself rito we could talk for hours about this, Josh, and I hope that you'll come back on the podcast soon if we can ask you to. That'd be fabulous. But Rito, yeah. 
thoughts, questions for Josh before we close? How do we help people? You know, there is a, like millennials are kind of really going through this moment right now. How do we how do we help them kind of through that uh, without pushing them away, without creating more hurt, uh, but also without with not lying as well that we want we want to draw them back into the church as well and say no. You need to hold to these orthodox truths because this is where life is. The church is where actual life is because this is where we worship that we worship Jesus, who can give you life. And that other, if you push it away, you'll only find dissatisfaction. But how do you how do we do that in a way that's actually enticing and uh, actually going to bring people back? I oh, that's a great question. I think where I'm at right now, and I wouldn't presume to have like the answer, but as a pastor and in my own little you know circle of the church. The things that I'm finding most helpful um, for myself and for my community and the people in it, uh, there's a few things. One is a bigger perspective of the Christian movement. I think that we tend to think, those of us in this expression of church tend to think, oh man, it feels like everyone's bailing out. It feels like no one's left. It feels like the whole thing's been called into question. It's just really not true from a global perspective. All around the world, the movement of Jesus thrives. And it thrives amongst people who do not fit the deconstruction demographic. You know, deconstruction statistically primarily happens amongst um, millennial, white, Western, affluent uh, young people. And uh, that is not the average Christian from a global perspective. The the average Christian, according to, you know, recent studies as recent as this year, is a teenage girl in Nigeria who does not have the same deconstruction experience as the, you know, hip podcaster guy in California with a following on Instagram. So it that's a that's a tiny tiny moment and uh, and you know like microcosm of the Christian movement as a whole. It's much bigger than that. And then the other thing I think is um uh, validating the questions, validating the struggles. Uh, you know, it would be ridiculous at this point. That's what, part of what my whole book is about. It'd be ridiculous to behave as if these are not legitimate concerns that these are not that there has not been legitimate hurt done to individuals and people and generations, quite frankly. All of us who have grown up in church circles have religious trauma. It's the inevitability of life with other human beings. Um, and we can validate that pain and, and talk candidly and honestly about that pain. But then, to your point, I think at the end of that, the invitation is to orthodoxy and 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 not watering down the truth of we we are actually inviting people to um, a standard, a code, a way of life, uh, an exclusive truth. And that, you know, that didn't sell great in the first century and it doesn't sell great today that the prerequisite to following Jesus is to deny yourself. <laughs> but at the, but that is, that is the ask, you know, if you, if you want to come up the mountain and train with the master and give your life over to something bigger than yourself, you, you have to die first. So it's that kind of combined honesty that can say, yeah, it sucks and it's been really hard. And at the same time, this is what we're doing that uh, creates a space where you can at least have the conversation instead of watering things down or trying to sweep the the, the real struggles under the rug. Joshua Porter, pastor of teaching and creative vision at Van City Church in Vancouver, Washington. Thank you so much for your time. And his book from Craigle Publications is called Death to Deconstruction, Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. And you'll love it. I think Rido and I loved it. Uh, it's honest, it's raw, and it's um, it's really good. Now, um, Joshua, where can people find you on social media, on the internet, and also that people can hear you preaching as well? Oh, well, 
If you go to joshuasporter.com, you can find all all those things, links to everything, the teaching and the social media. If you want if you if you care about that sort of thing and want to keep up with whatever it is I'm doing, it's all there. I very much enjoyed your sermon, God is dead and you're next. <laughs> yeah, I we forgot start, I called it that, but thanks we, for bringing it up. We started off with Nietzsche and his moustache, and we, it was it was brilliant. I thought it was just edgy and, and raw, and I really loved it. So thanks, man. All, all the best with your teaching, and uh, thank you very much. And thank you to Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Guys, thank you both so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.